So let us initiate this little, this evening and the celebration uh, with our guest of honor who has uh, uh, undertaken this difficult, rather difficult job to bring all my stories together and bring that what she has observed in my interaction with her and the Dharma that she brought into beautiful words for you to read and to live uh, with me and the Dharma once again via concepts hmm? in a book. So I can't say more, that is enough. And um, let us acknowledge this, this little time we have special arranged uh, for uh, celebrating this event, you and your efforts and your um, work and your enthusiasm, your love for Dharma, that's where it comes really from, hmm? that you did it. So, then let us hear the bell. And another one, and we will initiate it with a choral, very simple one. Ah, go down, base. your favorite or matching uh, uh, voice of <laughs> harmony. harmony. Oh. Simply bring the mind there where you are feeling the reverberation, where the life uh, or the rhythm of life is, is, is noticed and where you feel the mind is entering, beginning to penetrate and creating a deeper harmony and quiet for what is going to be presented. Hmm? Witness the next breath. You may I exist it a little. Ooh.
Ooh, everyone. Ooh. Oh. Relax. both very happy because it, this was a lot of work. <laughs> First of all, we both worked very hard. I mean, well, uh, Ruth and I sat in her house down at Damadena, in Las Vegas house, hour after hour, day after day, and talked to each other. And I asked her questions, some of them very difficult questions, and she answered them, and we went round and round, and, and uh, that's part of how this book came about. I also interviewed f more than 50 other people, uh, her students and How colleagues. Trip. What? How about the trip to LA we had to go? Yeah, we went on a trip to LA too, and um, went to the Zen centers there that she had been part of, Maizumi Roshi and Sasaki Roshi, very great Zen masters, and 
Ruth was their student, and not just their student, but their supporter, uh, when they were starting their Zendos. So we also went to Los Angeles, and uh, many other things had to occur. But what I discovered is that, is that Ruth's life sort of falls into three very rather neat segments. And the third one is the teaching segment, which started really when she was about 50. And that's the one that we're part of. But there were these two other segments that uh, I think it's really important to know about in order to understand how a spiritual teacher uh, comes, comes to, to, to be able to have the kind of depth and wisdom that Ruth has. Um, the first part was her growing up in Germany. She was born in 1922 in, in Germany. That was the Weimar Republic after the First World War. And in fact, she grew up during the Third Reich. Uh, Hitler came into power in 1930, wasn't it, or 33, 33, and the war began in 39, and as you know, it was over in 45. So all her growing up was during that very chaotic, difficult period. And then uh, she, she lived in East Prussia. East Prussia was the, the, the northeast-easternmost part of Germany. And uh, so it was right up against Poland. And then on the other side was the Polish corridor, which was a strip of land uh, uh, controlled by Poland. So essentially, um, <coughs> the place where Ruth lived, East, East Prussia, was sitting by itself out there, surrounded by Polish territory. So it was very vulnerable. And when the Germans lost the war in Russia, everybody came across that border. The German army came across and pushed the civilians ahead of them. Uh, the Russian army came across, and the Polish militia were there. And what ensued was, was pretty uh, horrendous. Also, the Allies were bombing the big German cities into rubble. And during that period of time, Ruth uh, experienced many very, very, very difficult um, um, uh, kinds of abuse, near starvation, illness, rape, and so forth, was in a concentration camp was kept as a slave by a, a Russian officer. And the, um, this was harrowing material for me to learn about and to work on. I had to do a lot of research into the, into the Third Reich and the war. But I also had to come to terms with and try to understand those experiences, which I haven't had, and uh, how, how does one survive them? How did Ruth survive them? And so we talked at great length about that, and, and in the book itself, I try to come to grips with it from uh, more our perspective as 21st century uh, privileged Americans. How, how can we come to grips with and understand that life that Ruth was living then? And part of her capacity to uh, uh, survive was her spirituality. And she could, she could go deeply in, inside herself. She could also, this great love of life that you've been experiencing for a week was there in her. She grew up on a farm, and she, she loved life. She loved all beings. And so that also uh, uh, helped her survive everything that happened to her. She would, she would get up and start to walk again. She never said, I want to die. I can't. She always said, I want to live. So there are great lessons here about survival. And then there was another, there was another incident uh, when she was in, she went back into East. Is it okay if I just tell your story? Is that all right?
<laughs> well, this is just an outline. But there was a moment she had, she had gone back into East Prussia to, it was a very generous bodhisattva action to try to find out about the children of one of her aunts who had been left back there when the Russians came. And uh, she made it back to the village which was in ruins, the family wasn't there, and there were a few Germans huddled in a little hut, surrounded by all these, these Russians and Poles, uh, many of them wounded, um, in despair, and so forth. And they, she went into the hut and stayed with them that night, and talks about a moment when she looked out the window and understood that from now on, uh, her life, if, if she survived, if she managed to come out alive, her life would be given to others, to service and to helping others. And she also understood that uh, suffering is, is easier to bear when it's shared, that all of them there had, uh, had experienced um, terrible uh, offenses, and yet they could grieve together for that. Um, hmm? Ah, yes. And in, in the, um, the abuse that was done to Ruth also, I would say to her, how could, you, how could you not become bitter? How could you not feel great hatred for these, these Russians and these Poles who were misusing you sexually, who were starving you, who were abusing you? And she said that she had an understanding, even in the midst of that, and we're talking maybe 22, 23 years old, right? Um, she understood that her people, the German people, had committed great crimes in the world, and particularly to these people, to these Russian people, and to the Poles, to the Jews, to the Gypsies, to all the, the homosexuals, the, everybody who, uh, whom the, the, the Nazis had uh, oppressed and murdered. And she understood that the, the rapes and the abuse uh, was being perpetrated upon her as revenge for that, and, and in a sense she, took, she had an impersonal position. She didn't take it personally. She didn't say, oh, it's, it's me, it's because I'm bad, and so forth. It's, this has happened. Conditions have come together in such a way that I now am suffering the way those Russian women suffered. What my people gave, I got now, not all, but I somehow in that whole happening, felt now being also part of that nation that was also bad. What I experienced now is just a karmic effect. Mm -hmm. I didn't think in terms of karmic, but like, you know, you do bad and uh, you, 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 you uh, have to take the result of it. So I felt this was in a way just natural what I experienced. And she told me also that <clears throat> as she looked around her, then she, you know, made it back to Berlin and they were living under uh, occupation and so forth, that the people who uh, were eaten up with bitterness, who were raging at the Russians or at the Allies and so forth, they didn't survive. They went crazy or they got terrible diseases and died. They did not survive. And again, Ruth is a survivor. Uh, she said, I want to live. And she understood that, that she could do that. 
there is Franklin, Franklin, what is that name? Franklin, Franklin. the professor who was in the concentration camp. Yes, he died recently. He had the same attitude. He did not hate, he understood his untrained mind or whatever functioning. She also knew how to, uh, really learned how to survive in terms of scavenging and making the best of absolutely everything that fell to her. So later she made friends with a, um, a British officer and he brought her socks from the PX because nobody had anything. And with bicycles, she un unraveled the socks so that she had some, some wool. And with bicycle spokes, because there were no needles, she knitted a sweater. Then she, she, um, she sold the sweater to some Russian officers for a bottle of vodka. Then she took the vodka and she walked 12 miles out into the countryside and she traded the vodka to a farmer for a bag of flour. And 50 pounds of flour, brought it back and they then could have bread to eat. Story after story of this kind of uh, will, the will to survive and the imagination, creativity to find a way to do it. You know, and I'm, I'm sitting there listening, I'm thinking, whoa, would I have done that? I don't know. I don't know, but she did. I would have. I don't know. <laughs> so that's the first. Mm -hmm. Is it okay to ask a question, Ruth? Yeah. You talk a little bit about your early spiritual life. Could, could you make a comment? Oh, yeah. Well, I had the Lord. I prayed. <laughs> and uh, um, in some uh, really intense uh, uh, moments, I would make promises. <laughs> promises to be good girl. <laughs> I made good contract with him. I forgot about it, and I saw that I'm doing it. So it was very deep. I didn't need to, to follow that rule at that time. Huh? And it, I understand it now. It was just the one-pointedness you get, you know, and the, the, the intensity in, in, in kind of unifying you with that higher power and trusting it. And it's okay. And uh, cooperating with it and uh, allowing your mind not to rush into into anger and hatred and reaction. And uh, like Ramda said, we have to say, yeah, this too. And another time, this too. That he is how he explains survival in, in, in intense, uh, uncomfortable situation. Without that, I could analyze it as I can do now. But that is uh, kind of was a little natural. I, you hear what? My teacher said when I parted, said, I can't do this and I can't do the discourses. I don't. He said, Don't worry, let this be your best friend. He said, You are natural, you're natural. You, you will figure it out <laughs> with your kind of little bit access to your better nature. And we all have it. I said it the other day. Also, in this, in this little village where she. Um, lived. Can I tell them about the golden middah? In this little village where she lived, she was known as the golden middah. Mitte. Mitte. The, uh, <laughs> the golden center. She could uh, 
She could run with the boys and have adventures. She could be with the girls and play their games, and, and she could unify everyone and take care of any problems in, in the family, too. She, she performed that. So this whole first section is actually called The Good Girl. Um, so then, the, I'll just go on to the second part of the life, this life, this amazing, adventurous uh, life. Ruth had the good fortune to come to the United States in 1957, uh, brought here by, um, sponsored by someone who had been sending care packages to her in Germany, or to her family. I, I somehow feel something in retrospect, yeah, what you said. You said always, I am born in that little village, which is true. There were about, I think, uh, 40, 45 or 50 children from the whole village. Uh, I wasn't exactly ra raised on a farm. It was a horticulture uh, 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 kind of uh, outfit. <laughs> or we, my father was a garden master. He had studied uh, uh, growing trees and uh, and um, bringing them, uh, you know, the, uh, cutting, making cuts, and uh, putting them again into grafting, yeah? And then we had grow fields of roses and fields of uh, other flowers and uh, lots of land with vegetables. We had big greenhouses where the, uh, where the, uh, the cucumbers were hanging inside and green and, and compassionately looking into the world to be eaten up. <laughs> and, uh, we, uh, and outside was snow and 20 below zero. Yeah? And I was uh, from a child of seven really um, transplanting the uh, plants the seeds, seedlings, into another bigger box, and then they were in different levels in these big glass houses. You have seen them. They are more now with plastic. But that's different than farm. We, you see, we had only, we had no cow, really, uh, to milk. But uh, our neighbor had the cows, and we got the milk there. And we delivered. Uh, uh, the retail shops in the villa, in the city, and hospitals. And in the war, my father, for being so engaged, also delivering and, uh, and, and growing vegetables and very early and uh, for the militaries, uh, he got a big, uh, big uh, mark or uh, uh, metal for being um, a very important war war um, uh, 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 business, or what, how do you call it, enterprise, yeah? And uh, big gardens with plums, mainly. Plums and very, uh, very special kind of apple, which were surviving through the winter, very beautiful boscops. Hmm? So that is a different thing. So I was really very, very close with everything. And making wreaths, making wreaths, Oh yeah, and my mom, well, she she was a designer when she was um, uh, sewing, and and making the patterns. She did sew without patterns. I was twenty-one when she, we would receive a ready-made dress. 
she would everything design and cut and she had 17 women young girls ladies uh, for uh, as apprentices for for teaching uh, them to to get the patterns which you can buy now very easily so what else did you say the wreaths, making the wreaths. Oh, yeah, so yeah. she had then uh, let go of that, just did it for the household. So she didn't do it professionally anymore. And then when she got married to a Gartenmeister hmm, and uh, uh, had a Gartenbaubetrieb, a great, kind of a wonderful enterprise, at in the war after the, the, the uh, victory of France, we got four and then six or eight eight workers, French prisoners, who helped uh, in the fields because the Germans were all drafted. Huh? And we had a good relationship with them. They ate with us. <clears throat> and uh, then in the evening they had to go into their camps. They were very well treated. They helped Mama even to, 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 to butcher <laughs> illegally a pig which they couldn't do it. We had to report what we are using for the household. Hmm? So anyway, that is, and mom had uh, changed into decorating with flowers. She arranged for weddings and for funerals. And in the city, we had a little retail shop where somebody was doing it, and she was very often there too. I didn't like that very much because these things happened always on Sunday. And then we had to all help uh, and uh, do these fabulous uh, wreaths and decorative things for the coffins and for the wedding, uh, uh, wedding uh, celebrations. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> It was a, it was kind of a feudal system up there yeah, in yeah. in East uh, East Prussia. <laughs> when I begin to uh, then go look well, I know no, I don't so the second big <laughs> section of Ruth's life, it, this section of the book is called The Little Immigrant, Spiritual Training in Hollywood in Asia. <laughs> And uh, Ruth, um, as I said, had the good luck to come to the United, United States in 1957. And um, not too long after that, she met Henry Dennison. Henry Dennison was a uh, tall, handsome, elegant, uh, very intelligent and cultured and rather wealthy gentleman. And they fell in love, and her life changed radically. They lived in a um, beautiful house up in the Hollywood Hills, if you know the Hollywood Reservoir. It's a, and he built it. He built it. And he, he also was a woodworker and a gardener and a nature man, as she says, and a spiritual seeker, a very serious spiritual seeker. Um, and he was part of what is now called, the, what we call the counterculture. 
you all, some of you remember that and others have heard of it. <laughs> Which was, remember that time. You remember that, that? Yeah, the seventies, the sixties, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Alan Watts, Timothy Leary, um, uh, all those folks. Uh, Ram Dass. Hmm? Yeah, and Aldous Huxley, and yeah, I know they were way. Anyway, he knew everybody, and everybody came to their home in Hollywood, and all the spiritual teachers came there and taught in the home, and then they would go every once in a while to go around the world and they would study with spiritual teachers. They'd stay for a couple of years in Japan and be in Zen centers in Japan, so they had a strong Zen training. They'd go to India, Lama Govinda, Chinmayananda, all sorts of spiritual teachers. So Ruth has, has a, a, a deep and wide training. But her first um, uh, real teacher was a woman whose name is, is Charlotte Selber. And uh, Charlotte Selber, created a system called um, sensory awareness. And up until a couple of years, well, Charlotte just died a couple of years ago. She, how old was she, 100? 102. 102. I think I mentioned her sometime. Yeah, you did. And um, <clears throat> her first teaching in, in California, way back in the 60s, I guess, was in Ruth's living room, Ruth and Henry's living room. So Ruth was there um, cooking the food and plumping the pillows and making sure that everyone was, she was not then a spiritual teacher, and uh, making sure everyone was comfortable. And here was Charlotte teaching this sensory awareness, and, and uh, Ruth completely got it because she was so based in her body already. Naturally, she was gifted in, in being aware of her body. And then here was Charlotte who had a whole system to train you to deepen that awareness. She just took to it, and, uh, and that was her first training. Though Charlotte Silver never thought of it as spiritual training, but uh, Ruth took it that next step. So that was the first teacher, this big chapter about her. And then the second teacher, Henry decided he wanted to go off to Burma to study with Mahasi Sayadaw, and, um, and Ruth wasn't that thrilled about it. He had been a Vedanta monk. And for seven years before that, and she was afraid he'd get with Mahasi Sayadaw, who was a monk, and he would decide to be a monk again, and then they couldn't be together. So she really <laughs> didn't like that idea. But he insisted, so they went off to Burma. They went to the center for, for Mahasi Sayadaw. But because Ruth's back was hurting her so bad, they couldn't stay there because the, it was just a, a piece of wood that you slept on. So they, un, they heard that they, the beds were a little better over across town. <laughs> in Rangoon over, over there with Uba Kin. So they went over to Uba Kin's place. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Uba Kin was a, a lay person. He was not a, uh, he was a layman. So he accepted them. Uba Kin was a, as I said, a layman. He was a, a, a deep, deep spiritual teacher. And he was a government official. He was all of these things. So he was very much in the world, mm -hmm. uh, which was just right for Ruth, too, who's always in the world. Um, so they kind of settled in, and Henry really was very intent upon getting it. He was going to get it. You know, he's going <coughs> to get it. You know how we do? We really think it's going to happen. We want it to happen. And Ruth was resisting. Uh, she thought, why do we want it? Could be because Uba Kin was talking about um, uh, paying attention to the body and teaching them to sweep through the body. And then she was saying, oh, why do I want to do this, Charlotte Selber? I've already done it. 
I already know how to do this. Why? And so she was resisting, and he was trying to teach her, and she was resisting. And here was Henry trying to get it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so finally, as she says, um, one day she, uh, it occurred to her that maybe this guy, this Burmese man, had something to teach her. So she thought, oh, okay, well, I'll stop resisting. I'll just open up, and I'll start paying attention to what he's saying. And then everything just opened and opened and opened and opened and opened. And, and he, he challenged me on that. He challenged her on, he, on her resistance. Yeah, he confronted her on her resistance, and she decided to give it a try. And um, pretty soon he had really had recognized her as someone who was deeply, deeply um, gifted in this practice and moving forward in it. And then from then on, uh, she would come back to Burma whenever she could, which is really difficult given the political situation there. She would come back whenever she could to, to study with him, and often when she was in other parts of the world, she would meditate at the same time he was meditating. So her, she had chosen, she'd stepped into the stream of Vipassana. She had chosen her practice, had stepped into the stream, and even though they were doing all these other practices, they were doing Zen, they were doing Hindu practices, they were doing all, Ruth really was doing Vipassana in the midst of it all. She'd go back to the hotel room and meditate, do Vipassana, do sweeps, continue her practice, deepening, deepening her practice, while doing all these other things. So Uba Kin is really her teacher. His portrait is in the, in the Zendo at Dhammadena. There's more about that. But then they also were involved with Timothy Leary. And um, you know who he was, you know, tune in, turn on, and drop out. And so they tuned in and turned on, but of course they never dropped out. And they went to Millbrook. Mm -hmm. One little more thing about Uba yeah. Kin. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was one of the, it was said uh, that he wouldn't uh, take on any student who wasn't at least the first degree of awakening. You know, a stream entered, you mentioned the stream. And of course, he wouldn't accept uh, Henry Jensen, but he immediately would accept Accepted class, Ruth, because yes. He recognized that. It wasn't self-Charlotte teaching, it was her actualization of that teaching. Absolutely, yeah. A very rare, and he wouldn't take many students. Right. Especially a woman. <laughs> yeah, he had, uh, he had like, I think, five Dharma heirs. Only one was a woman, that was Ruth. And this was, um, Henry, of course, is a, is, a, is a major character in this book, and this was very difficult for him. So, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but they went to Millbrook uh, and wound up at Millbrook for a while. There's a wonderful story of how they got there, which is much too long to tell, but anyway, the, where Ruth dressed up and sneaked in and became part of an LSD party, and Henry didn't know it was her, and ah, oh, it's a terrific story. <laughs> yes, it's in here. But then they it all, you know, everybody settled down, and then they stayed there for some months. And um, I had to excuse me. I had to uh, talk a little bit about it. Yeah, you remember that? Mm -hmm. I, 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 I called your attention also to a more positive attitude, and um, it depended upon the ones who took it. In fact, the man who discovered it was a medical doctor, uh, Sandoz. No, they were the producers of it. 
in, in Switzerland. And he uh, was experimenting in his uh, office with these things he concocted there. Um, half, uh, what? I forgot his name. I recently read about that he died. But uh, what I wanted to say is, he at that time, so uh, he f one evening he finished, or was it in the afternoon, probably, and he took his bicycle to go home. You know, doctors drive bicycles in Europe, too, not at that time, at least. And uh, <laughs> he started a little wobbling. <laughs> and he realized something is happening in his head. And then he uh, refined it a little bit and explored himself. That is important. Before he released it, and he also released it very caringly. Uh, Tim Leary had th the Sandox material, I know that. So um, it was uh, a, a, a very psychological drug. You didn't need, it didn't have any bad effect like others on your body and ruined, like some, ha those, I don't know which ones they are, heroin and so on, hmm? no, but it had one danger, <coughs> and uh, in that, that it would uh, intensify and continue on that state in which you were. So when we took it, there was always a deep meditation before, also in Millbrook. I became the meditation master there. And every day, one was holding the guard, 24 hours sitting in a little pavilion, from 12 o'clock at noon to 12 o'clock at noon, 24 hours. And then the community came together with Tim Leary, and we would report to, the, the one who sat would report about the experiences. So it was kind of a very sophisticated uh, enterprise. It wasn't just Larry Dury Dari. But it, there were scenes which were a little bit, uh, because some took it a little secretly and then uh, spaced out. And uh, it um, was then uh, so, uh, jumped out of the box, so to speak. Hmm? <laughs> it's not always very advisable. <laughs> So, but I remember <coughs> one evening, shall I tell you? <laughs> That's not in the book. I don't think so, darling. I don't know until you see. Yeah, all right. Well, then you could, uh, the, the you, you mentioned the already, yeah. <laughs> no, no, you mentioned already that I kind of appeared in one of their great meetings. Yes. And uh, in disguise, you know, I had loose things over me, uh, the second, the first layer, and I appeared in there, and they were all kind of floating and in uh, higher regions, and maybe at halfway to first entry of enlightenment and so on. And my husband was sitting in a, he didn't take me to that, I followed. <laughs> that is the trick. That's why I appeared. That evening, they are, they were playing the the um, uh, Perlenspiel from Hermann Hesse. You know Perlen, the uh, beat beat. The glass bead game. Glass, yeah. They had prepared for that uh, that play in the bowling alley, but this was in a big big villa in the um, 
Millbrook, what are these big uh, uh, magnets of the movie who owned that? Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. Hitchcock owned Millbrook and gave it to Timothy Leary. Right. Somebody in the Hitchcock yeah, family. Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I arrived in the airport, took a taxi, and changed quickly, took a, a motel quickly, changed with kind of like something like this, light, you see, double, took over. I have something underneath here, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there is another layer, actually. I have a, a, a skirt here, but, uh, but anyway. And it, you couldn't see who was underneath. And so my husband sits there in a big rocking chair in a fabulous, elegant uh, terrace, and ladies in floating gowns, and everyone had acid. I knew that. And they were about to go to the performance of that play. So, um, and. Uh, they were sitting at his feet, and you know he looked like he had many looks. He had looked like uh, Lincoln sometimes, and sometimes like Saint Paul, <laughs> and uh, some sometimes <laughs> very elegant. Yeah, so he is rocking, and they are sitting out and listening. And he could wonderfully also speak and so on. And now I come. <laughs> In this floating, I floated all. I overfloated then. <laughs> I was much more floating, all in green and 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 different shades of green, and uh, well, it was fabulous. I go and float behind him instead of in front, and go close to his side and bend down what the other one did, give him a kiss. Hmm? Oh, he said. <laughs> Who is she? I made this sign and disappeared. Became too close. So then came the time that we received Le Asso, and it was in front of a big lawn. In the center was a fountain with different, with different colors. Uh, emerging and in motion was really a beautiful scene. Couldn't be more romantic. And then we were delivered uh, little f uh, candles in little containers, and were asked to now proceed through the forest a little bit toward a, a, a lake where there was a bowling alley. It was a fabulous hall and so on all wood, fabulous. And uh, I had until then, so kind of floating, well, floating in and out, and heard always, how old is she? No one could answer. Hmm? So, and then when I heard that, oh, when I was close, I disappeared again. So, <clears throat> you know, to make yourself a little rare, you uh, kind of evoke more interest. <laughs> I <laughs> don't do that anymore, but that, that time there, when it was kind of appropriate for the situation. So uh, then I uh, kind of moved myself with the proce procession hmm, toward this big um, uh, um, uh, bowling alley. And it, had, it was a room like this, um, only nicer inside with woods, and two big uh, doors on both sides. 
Henny, with his entourage, <laughs> uh, moved this w on this side, it was exactly this side, and Tim Leary with his entourage <laughs> on the other. And we were all kind of going toward Tim Leary and Henry, they were good friends. They, they uh, approached each other with the entourage, and I was one of them, but so that I wasn't too much foreground. However, now Tim Leary discovered me. Also, I was different, apparently, you know, I, I, <laughs> I didn't need the LSD to me, <laughs> and mine were more floating. Anyway, so Tim Leary said, Henry, who is she? He said, how do I know who she is? I already saw her. I wonder myself. And so it goes back and forth somehow, and Tim Leary takes my veil and unveils me. Now you can see that face of my husband. <laughs> After these little intimate touches. <laughs> see, the preparations are always more interesting. <laughs> I don't need to tell you more. <laughs>